Welcome to the Two Hip Podcast. Today's guest is a good friend. She and my wife have been friends for a long time, so I've known her for years. I think she's going to be a really interesting person to talk to today, and I'm really excited to have her on. She's a psychologist, uh, clinical, and also um, specializes in HIV and fetal uh, research. She works at a variety of schools uh, in the Northeast. I'll leave it at that vague place. And she's a faculty member, kind of has been in school for a while now, kind of working her way up and building up to more clinical experience and and, um, has put out more and more research and seems like you're in a really good place. And aside from all that awesome stuff, which I think we can dive into uh, specific to your career, she's just a wonderful person and always seems like a very genuine, nice and polite person, very respectful. And I like having those kind of people around to talk to. So I'm really glad to have you here. Let's welcome Dr. Alexa Bonacquisti. Excellent. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad um, we were able to set this up. We had a little technical issue last time, so I'm glad we we're able to do it this time. I appreciate you rescheduling. <laughs> so today, I think we'll just start off with giving you a chance to explain yourself because you know more about what you're working on than I do, obviously. Explain yourself. The hostile segment where you explain you like you're on trial. All right, here we go. So yeah, I think you did pretty well um, describing my background, but yeah, I grew up um, in the Philadelphia area, so Northeast, we could be a little more specific, but yes, in the Philadelphia area. Um, and yeah, I'm a, so I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm also a faculty member um, at a university in the Philadelphia area as well. And um, yeah, so my background, you know, at least like, my career and and um, academically has been in uh, women's reproductive health. So I've worked a lot with pregnant women and postpartum moms, and um, have also, as you mentioned, worked um, uh, with women who are living with HIV during pregnancy. So yeah, that's kind of what I've I've been up to um, in terms of my research and my clinical work. Great, thank you. I think that's really helpful. I think. Um I like to, you know, we're going to go into a big, deeper conversation in a minute, and I have a couple questions. Um, some are more specific to you, and some I just like to ask everybody and kind of find out um, how they think on certain certain issues. But before we kind of dive into that, I, this is my sort of test in the beginning. To hypocrisy, like the recaptcha for authenticity, meant to be easy on humans, hard on hipster bots. Yes, I'm not a robot. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's easy on humans, hard on bots, and I'm <laughs> I'm using bots as the term to describe hipsters. So so people that are inauthentic, they would fail this test. And what it is is it's it's really silly, but basically um, it's I call it the two hypocrisy, and it's it's basically just I think there's something really nice about people who have. Uh, sort of internal conflicts or contradictions in their own life. Like, it, I feel like it makes people human. Like, I think I gave this example before, but, like, I love musicals and I also love horror movies, which usually those two equate to, like, a serial killer, if you like both. So, you know, there's some things, like, it's just a weird human thing. Or maybe it's something a little bit deeper. Um, another one that I've mentioned is, like, I love, re- like, I'm attracted to intelligent people 
and yet I hate the word sapiosexual, <laughs> and I hate people who use it. It's just really <laughs> obnoxious. Like autodidact and all that kind of stuff just sounds so pretentious and obnoxious. So it's like a co- conflicting thing. It can be anything. It can be silly. It can be more deep. I've gotten a lot of answers all over the place so far. And, you know, uh, like I love coffee shops, but I don't drink coffee at all but I just love the environment it sounds like a terrible like dating profile kind of thing like that's what it should be like the worst the worst line on a dating profile and as far as it relates to your life do you have anything like that interesting I mean the first thing that kind of comes to my mind it's it's more deep and I sort of wonder what this says about me it's not like (laughs) one of those funny kind of off-the-cuff inconsistencies but you know I always think about when you when you mention that like internal struggle it for me, what just comes up is like, you know, I really like to cook and I like to clean and I like to, you know, be at home and take care of the house and do all this stuff. But like, I would never, like, part of me feels weird, like admitting that because that's so like, seemingly not feminist. And also, like, if my husband were to, like, try to cook, I would be like, no, absolutely not. Like, (laughs) that's what I like to do. But yet, I believe that we both should equally contribute in those ways. So, I don't know if that is kind of what you had in mind, but that's I, th- sort of I think that's sort of uh, that's a good answer, yeah. Especially you sort of mentioned like yeah, you're, you 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 want to have like this feminist uh, viewpoint where women can do anything, right? It's it's all everything's everything's equal. So um, it is. I always find it interesting. You know, I, some of the most feminist women I know are like stay-at-home moms, which seems mm-hmm. very weird. Um, like just in, like it, instinctually, it's kind of like that doesn't seem to work, but. It doesn't. I don't think it takes away from that. It's just one of those yeah. things that, like, um, it's all. In some ways, it's the opposite in our house. Like, I think people are surprised when I say that. Like, I do a lot of the cooking in in our case, but there's other things that are, are balancing around. So yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, and feminism is about having a choice too, like staying home or not, and choice is what it really is about. I think too. Yeah. Okay. Great. That's good. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I know it's sort of a weird question and I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to describe it more succinctly. Um, so I got to think about that, but I appreciate your answer. So yeah, at this point, I just like, I want to dive in maybe, maybe first we can talk about some of the career related stuff. So some of the things that jump out to my mind, I mean, your specific career, first of all, I think everybody's familiar with, uh, um, patient client confidentiality. So I, I don't anticipate you to say anything about any specific people. Um, but I, I am really curious, you know, you're in this really interesting scenario where I feel like you get people in very, very vulnerable pos- positions where they're being very real. You, you know, I like to think, but then you probably have seen the other side. Like, I would imagine you're pretty good at reading uh, real people or not at this point. Like, do you feel do you feel like that? A and I guess B, could you maybe dive into what it's like to to be on that conversation where you have these people that are a either opening up or being really really like you can just tell that they're holding everything back like both both sides of the extreme I guess yeah and I think that's a big part of you know if you think about the role of a psychologist or a therapist like you want to have this unconditional positive regard for your client or your patient and that's the relationship is that you you have this trust and this mutual respect and that you know you don't want to be skeptical of what your client is telling you if it's true or if they're holding back or um but at the same time i think part of it too is is being able to read that and being able to notice when it seems like they aren't being honest with themselves or you might just try to develop those discrepancies without maybe necessarily being confrontational but you know bringing up like what other 
possibilities there might be or other ways to see it. So I think that definitely does come up quite a bit. Right. And with more sensitive personal information, especially in regard to like um, both areas that you work with specifically, uh, uh, HIV, I imagine, do people have a hard time even like talking about that? Like, I, I guess my question is, do they often come in knowing that they have HIV? Like, what, like what's the sort of process? Like, how do they come to you? How does that start? Is there a relationship? Like, obviously, if that's something you specialize, then they know to come to you to talk about it. But do you have just other people that don't have those issues that are just regular patients? I'm just kind of curious what the mix is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, throughout my clinical training, like while I was in graduate school, I specialized in health psychology. So I saw a wide range of patients, patients with um, different neurodegenerative diseases, patients with um, just in a hospital setting that had a variety of medical conditions. So kind of got to see a lot of different types of presentations. Um, But, you know, for the patients living with HIV um, with whom I worked, so I was primarily treating them through um, an HIV clinic that was providing like obstetrical care. So sometimes the women would present at their OB and they would do a routine HIV test as part of the prenatal care. And then they would receive the diagnosis and then would be like transferred to talk to me. Um, Whereas other women had been living with HIV for a long time. And so it was not like a new diagnosis for them. And so it was really great because psychology was integrated within the clinic. So it was very normalized. Um, It was offered to everybody. And we were also doing some really cool research as well as part of that. So yeah, it was, that's kind of how, um, you know, those women would have the chance to meet with me. That was sort of the, the process. Um, that we went through. So, so with uh, so you started with the HIV patients, correct? And then you sort of switched mm-hmm. over to more of the fetal uh, work, like, and I'm I'm using fetal generically. I don't even know what, like sort of <laughs> what I'm describing. Um, is it yeah. like, is it just moms with fetal issues, or is it um, mm-hmm. uh, people who want to have kids and maybe think they're going to have issues? It, it kind of all ties together. Yeah. So my like broad interest is in just is in women's reproductive health in general. So I was really interested in pregnancy in the postpartum period, but also was interested in adverse reproductive events. So infertility, pregnancy loss, um, pregnancies that were complicated by a condition like HIV. Um, And then my dissertation was focused on NICU admissions. So babies who were admitted to the neonatal intensive care unit, like shortly after birth. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of the, the population um, that I've worked in and have kind of done different, like play different roles, I guess, you know, clinically in, in all those different areas. Do you think, um, now you recently had a, had a child, so do you think that ties into it or, or had, did this sort of start as that was happening? So I had been interested in that like long before I, you know, was pregnant or even like before children were even anywhere near, you know, my future. And it's so interesting because as a psychologist, you think like, oh, you have so much empathy for your patients and you, you know, part of our job is to really try to understand so intimately like what somebody's going through. And so I'm like, oh yeah, I I know exactly what it's like to be a new mom and I totally get it. And then when I had a baby, I was like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> I, I can't even I totally get it in such a different way. Yes. So that was really striking. 
um, yeah, that was very much like a, you know, in terms of my professional and personal development, that was a big, right. you know, becoming a mother was a big moment. And well, and you know, if we, if we're going to keep tying it back to authenticity, I think that probably helps you be genuine, more genuine, you know, just come off as look this, I actually went through this. I have a kid. Like I know, I know what this is like. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I think that's, a, that's a great perspective to have to understand where people are coming from. Um, so kind of tying on that, do you, uh, I guess what am I trying to say? Um, so we, you, you talked about your clients and their perspective and how they're authentic or inauthentic. How, how I feel like, you know, you have this, this sort of medical wall, I'll say, at least that's my perception, um, of of the role specifically, but like, how do you try to break that down so that it can be a more real conversation? And, And I think from my perspective, I feel like that would help people, but I'm just curious how you feel about that. And, and like professionally, is there a debate about how personable, you know, you, you can be or can't be? Yes. That's actually a huge debate or I don't know if I would say a debate in the field, but there's, you know, a lot of different ways that people will approach that question, uh, in terms of self-disclosure, you know, how much about yourself are you going to disclose to your patients or, you know, using your own personal experiences or, um, you know, like sharing different aspects. I think when you kind of think about like boundaries and, um, I mean, it is a professional relationship and, and it's a really unique relationship. So it's not a friendship. It's not, uh, you know, it's different from a lot of the other relationships we we enter into. Um, but at the same time, like in order for it to be effective, it has to be genuine and it has to be authentic. And like this is a human connection that you're right. having with somebody else. So I feel like we we do our patients and ourselves like a disservice when we when we aren't authentic, you know, in the room. So I think there's a lot of different ways to get at that. I mean, I think using humor is one way that you can connect with patients and be authentic. Um, I think self-disclosure is really powerful when it's used appropriately and when it's used, you know, with discretion. Um, But yeah, it's, it's definitely something that in the field, a lot of different uh, clinicians will, will handle that in different ways in terms of trying to cultivate that authenticity. Right. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, one of the things that happens in a natural conversation, and I hear this all the time when I listen to conversations, and it, it seems more common the younger we are just as people, but um, but I, I tend to see people, and I, I constantly f- stop myself from doing this, so I, I'm not blameless in this, um, but, you know, in a, in a normal conversation, I find that people are trying to sort of one-up the other person's story or moment, yeah. and I feel like you have to try to be the opposite of that. And so, yeah, I think self-disclosure is still helpful, but it has to be in a way that you're not ever trying to make it seem like your moment is bigger or more dramatic or more serious than whatever they're talking about. And, like, you know, you have to still give them the space to, to, to open up and, and be honest and um, without sort of stepping on their toes, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, and that was really hard because after I had a baby, I would be sitting with a new mom who she's like talking about how she didn't get any sleep. And I wanted to be like, yeah, I didn't get any sleep last night either. <laughs> and my baby, this and, my. and I want you, you have to check yourself and be like, yeah, we're not friends. Like we're not at a coffee shop, hanging out, talking about our lives. Like this is your therapy. And, 
um, when you notice that as the therapist being pulled to share something, that is usually an indication that you should not share it because it then becomes about you and kind of one-upping or, you know, just sharing something that is really not going to be beneficial for the other person and for, you know, the therapy goals. Right. It's definitely, you know, it's, it's a challenge and I think um, something that you have to be aware of all the time. Yeah. So I think, so as far as like, you, you, you're able to have this professional one. You seem like you have a good grasp on like where, like the a balance that I think should be there. Mm-hmm. So now stepping back for a second to your personal life, mm-hmm. if you, I mean, again, you, you come off as a very honest person, but do you, how do you feel internally? Do you feel like there's moments where you want to maybe speak up more and you don't, do you feel like how, like, how authentic do you feel like you're living your, your day to day life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think I have always been kind of in the role of listener and like encourager and supporter. Um, and, you know, it's funny because my husband always says to me like, oh, your facial expressions, every time you know, I, you're in a conversation with somebody like you're just nodding and making eye contact and smiling and, you know, and it's hard because I feel like I can't separate. My mom always says to me like, oh, you're acting like a psychologist with me. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't, I, it's like, I don't know. I think I'm just being, and that feels authentic to me, like right. doing that stuff. And maybe that's why I chose to become a psychologist because it was just a good fit. Yeah. Well, you're giving, um, yeah, you're giving people room to breathe. I think that's, that's really mm-hmm. the point. And it's not really how most people approach conversations. As I, as I said earlier, um, it's yeah. very hard to do that, to actually like give someone a moment to, to say their piece and, yeah. you know, p- anybody who's listening, I think when you come when you come out of a conversation, you feel like, oh, man, that was a great conversation. Nine times out of ten, go back and look at it. And you'll be like, wow, I was talking the whole time. That's why it <laughs> felt great because I was the one talking the whole time and I didn't really listen to them. And they might not feel the same way coming out of that conversation. Not all, I mean, not say that they, they, they don't mm-hmm. always, but, yeah, it's one of those things you got to yeah. – it's hard to – contribute without competing almost it's this weird this weird sort of social thing that happens yeah and it's interesting because you know so I I have a clinical practice but then I'm also faculty and so I spend a lot of time teaching where I'm the one dominating the conversation and guiding it and directing it and I like to incorporate discussion but as you know you you've done you know academic uh teaching and as a faculty member like you have to be in control of it. And so that is also really different from what you would do in therapy, or it's also different from how I think I approach like my personal relationships and conversations too. So you kind of think about the different dimensions of yourself and it's interesting. Right. So do you, I mean, you, you obviously seem to love what you do, but do you have like uh other side pursuits like is there something that you just go after on the side that's like a little hobby and i'm just curious like how maybe authenticity plays into that is that is, do you feel like they're like just to give an example i personally you know i have my day job as an architect and you know that i do like the side theater stuff and performance and that that is something now again i'm not saying everybody has to have some side thing and and Ideally, if you're in a situation where you do like your day job uh, as much as you sound like you do, um, uh, I feel like then maybe you don't feel like you need that. But I feel like sometimes I kind of need this other thing. Um, and I'm just curious what that might be, if, if anything. And, and uh, yeah, like where where your true self is coming out more and more, I guess, is really what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, I, 
I always hate the hobby question because I'm like, I, I don't feel like I have hobbies. Like, I don't know. Is watching Netflix like a hobby <laughs> or, you know, like, especially after having um, my daughter, like all of my free time, I feel like, like I just laugh when I, when I think like, oh, I used to feel like I was so busy and oh, now. Not even close. <laughs> not even close. <laughs> and so I feel like all my free time now is just spent with her or, um, I mean, I would honestly say, like, probably what I enjoy most, I really, kind of going back to what we were talking about before, like, cooking, I really enjoy cooking, I really like cleaning my house, I like, you know, that kind, those kind of, like, domestic sort of activities, I don't know that you would call it a hobby, but I feel like that's what I spend time on when I'm not working, it's either with my daughter and my husband, my family, or, like... It's, yeah, really it's therapeutic, I think, and that that's part of it, too, like, especially... At least, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I feel like, uh, like doing dishes for me now has become like a thing where it's like it's actually therapeutic. I'm like, oh, this is actually really nice to just do dishes, and it's satisfying to get them off the counter, and like, so I can understand yeah. that definitely, especially when you have kids. It's like it's so ridiculous to try to juggle anything. Yeah, that's like your alone time is like cleaning and <laughs> doing stuff like that. Right. I mean, I don't know how many times we've like we like literally finished like setting up everything for the next day and then we fall asleep on the couch trying to watch some, some one episode of like a 20-minute show we can't even get through. Yeah. Um so, so. Yeah. So okay, that's good. But I, I also think, you know, from my perspective again, I know it's kind of related in your mind, but I do definitely see you as like a social person. Like that to me seems like something that you're really into like just like being engaged in everyone's lives, your friends' lives, and, and being very connected to friends and family. And I think that's also a really important thing to have uh, and keep going. And again, I think especially to be yourself and to allow other people to be themselves in that scenario um, yeah. is really helpful. And that's something I've worked really hard for too. Like I don't, I don't feel like, oh, friendships have to come easy. It's like you have to put in the work to, to stay friends. And I mean, your wife and I have been friends since high school and like, that's because we've made the effort to really stay in touch. And so I do spend a lot of time and I also have a really big family. And so that's not, not, not that hard. Yeah. You, you're like yeah. juggling family stuff all the time. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I guess one of the other questions I have here, um, pulling up a few as we're talking. Um, so what is, uh, you know, going back in your life because I do feel like one of the hardest things, if there's anybody listening who's who's younger, you know, than us, we, um, I'm not going to give our ages, but uh, <laughs> if there's anybody who's on the younger end of the spectrum and is feeling like maybe they're they're less authentic or they're not being themselves, I, I do feel like it's definitely harder the younger you are to just open up. But the earlier you can do it, I just want to, like, put it out to the universe, try to do that. So I'm curious, um, I've asked a couple of people this question, like, what what was one of your earliest memories where you felt like, um, you first expressed your individuality or, or sort of felt like you were being um, conscious, yeah, I can't even speak right now, uh, <laughs> conscientiously um, understanding who you were, I, even if it was just for a moment. Um, do you have maybe something you, that jumps out in your mm -hmm. mind? <laughs> yeah, I can't believe I'm going to share this. Oh, but great. Um. I, lo I, I love that, that you're starting with that. Okay, go. <laughs> I mean, it's not that bad, but it's, this is the first thing that, that I thought of. So, um, you know, I think in, in high school is kind of a time where you, for everybody like developmentally, where you kind of start to, to, um, 
really explore like who you are and kind of gain that sense of independence. And I remember um, we went to this restaurant that is nearby. It's called the Charcoal Pit. <laughs> I'm familiar, and, yes. <laughs> yeah, so it was me and two, you know, really close friends from high school. And I remember um, we wore sweatpants. And we ordered, it's called the kitchen sink, which is like this huge, you know, ice cream, whatever. It's like 25 scoops of ice cream. Yeah. I don't even know. Has all Way too many calories, it. all that stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I just remember being like, I don't know, just like going out to a place in sweatpants. Like I never would have done that. Like <laughs> in, you know, when I was younger, um, never would have just been like, yeah, I'm going to eat this entire ice cream thing and not care and about not care. it. Like it was kind of freeing to be like, yeah, nobody is looking at me or caring what we're doing and we are having the best time ever. <laughs> and it just did feel really like authentic and just like, I didn't really care about what other people were thinking. And when you realize that nobody actually is even paying attention to you or gives a shit about what you're doing, like, right. I just, I still remember that night doing that. And I mean, I, I think the older you get too, you realize like you do have to live consistently with your values and what's meaningful to you and do those kind of activities that really feel authentic and genuine and like bring you pleasure because, you know, that's really what's important. Right. Yeah. I, I had a, fr well, just on sort of the, the stylistic choices you made, I, I had a friend <laughs> in college that said, uh, uh, and this is, you know, in college, it's still a little bit later, but we went to college in Syracuse, so it was very cold. And um, they, they, she made a comment about, like, getting the most warm, ridiculous jacket because, like, oh. I just want to be warm. No one's looking at you. Everyone's got their head down, and they're just trying to get to class in, like, the freezing weather, and no one cares about what you look like, you know. And um, even something as silly as that, like, jumped out, stood out in my mind for a few years, and I look back at that now as, like, yeah, that's like that's someone just being real, like in the moment, being just. I care about what I care about in this moment, and I don't think it's being selfish. I think it's just being practical, and when it's what you want to do, that's. I think that's a good way to live. Yeah, yeah, and it's just like this. These are the people that are important, you know. My friends who were with me, like it was just like this is what really matters. And as a teenager, it's kind of hard to see that, um, but I think it's an important lesson. So. Um, on the opposite end of that, you know, how do you feel about when you encounter people who, who seem to l completely lack self-awareness, um, especially like older, older and older people? <laughs> um, it, it, it's, I mean, I have my personal opinions on it, which I've already probably said on a couple uh, conversations, but I want to hear what you have to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's challenging because my whole, you know, like, worldview and the way that I think about other people and I don't know I'm always kind of taking note of like the external circumstances that affect situations and you know I I have a lot of beliefs about why things are the way they are and I I just tend to I don't know I feel like I'm I try to avoid judgment and, you know, making assumptions about people and um, paying attention to all of the different complexities that make up the situation, right? Of because course. I think we tend to just jump to a conclusion. And so it is hard when you see people kind of lacking that self-awareness and not having that, like, 
intersectional, like contextualized kind of view of things. Um, yeah, so I don't know that I found like a good answer to that, except just, I don't know. I, I'm not really a confrontational person, although I feel compelled more and more to to be confrontational or to at least like have those conversations because I, I feel like there's a lot at stake. Um, but it's, it's, it presents a challenge for sure. Yeah. I, uh, I don't think I'm, (laughs) uh, I, I have, I say my opinion, my opinions a little bit more, uh, intensely perhaps maybe than I should. Um, and I, again, I, I think I'm trying to sort of step back and not, not do that as much, but, I do question why why people do certain things. Um, you know, even my own family. I'm just like, like my mom. Some her, I'm more upfront about it, so I don't even feel like I'm I'm like doing anything. But I'll, sometimes I'll just say like I I don't understand like where this comes from. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I think maybe that's it's always weird too. In that case, like this is my family. Like this is my mother who's raised mm-hmm. me for years. And sometimes we communicate and I'm just like, I don't understand like where this is coming from or where you like, what, like, are we not understanding each other at all? Like we're just not communicating in the same way. It's, it's very confusing. <laughs> I don't even, I don't know. This is just a comment more than a question. Um, yeah, but I think it's really common. Like a, a lot of people don't think about why they have certain beliefs or where these attitudes came from. And, and so some of that introspection and that, like, I don't know, doing that, that work that that's difficult, but yeah, it's something that I think we, and this is also something in the, in the kind of therapy that I do, like cultivating the sense of flexibility, like people are very, tend to be very rigid and it's like all or nothing. It's this or that. And people can't really, or, or don't want to appreciate all of the, the nuances and, mm-hmm. you know, the complexities of different situations. And so it can make that communication difficult. Right. It sort of goes back to this sort of uh, the inter internal conflict stuff I was talking about earlier, where we we're like, even <coughs> excuse me. By the way, I apologize if anyone's listening and I'm coughing occasionally, <laughs> and to you. Um, but I actually just found out this morning that I have pneumonia. Um, <gasps> no. Yes, it's terrible. I've had <laughs> apparently I've had it for like two weeks now, um, and I only just oh, discovered it. Uh, so uh, luckily, I'm getting medicine for it. But I apologize if I'm coughing randomly. I was really trying to hold it together. Uh, so. Got got sidetracked there, um, <laughs> but I think you know there's there's this internal conflict. I, what you said is is it's not all black and white. I do I try to reiterate that as well. You know that there there's a whole lot of things going on um, in terms of how people uh, get to a certain place in their life, right? Um, yeah, I, I'm. I wish I could ask you specific questions, but obviously you can't. You can't tell, talk about like specific people, but you know, is there being as general as you can, is, is there a certain experience that really like just struck you as, um, really maybe giving a lot of sympathy or where you, where you heard a certain perspective, a certain history about someone you were like, wow, I really did not give you, I I don't know what I'm trying to say. Um, (laughs) I, I, you know, I have more sympathy for you now after hearing something that that's very like intense. I, I, I imagine that's happening to you all the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that is 
I mean, when you're in the position and it's a privilege, you know, to be in that position where people are coming to you and sharing things that they maybe haven't shared with anyone or, you know, very few people. And I I think if you can look at people's life experiences with like this sense of openness and curiosity and like appreciation for everything that they've been through, like it is, I feel like every person that I've worked with, I've had that experience where it's just like, wow, I... I just can't imagine going through that or what that must have been like for you. And so all of it makes sense, right? Like if you think about like scientist, you know, you're you're taking the emotional side out of it, thinking about like a scientist and thinking about functionally, how is this working and how are these things fitting together? And it makes complete sense that you would be suicidal or that you would, um, uh, you know, have a problem with expressing your emotions or that you would be really angry or whatever it is. Because look at what you've been through that has led you to this point. And mm-hmm. that is, I think, the value of, of therapy in a lot of ways is like noticing those patterns and, and validating that experience. So what about when you see people on the other side where um, in a positive, you know, in a pa- positive way where they're just mm-hmm. they're rolling through things like it's not hurting them. Do you actually have more questions in those cases like where you're like, mm-hmm. are they hiding something like there's got to be something that hurts them? Yes. So in those cases, it's like, I mean, you know, there are people who are really resilient. We have um, this, like, when you, most people are familiar with, like, PTSD or, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, there is this whole psychological concept called post-traumatic growth, which is, you know, the positive outcomes that can come, like, following a trauma, you know, so, of course, people are incredibly resilient, and, you know, we want to, like, respect that, but at the same time, you want to be listening, you know, like a therapist and kind of think, huh, what are you avoiding? The fact that you've been through all this, nothing is bothering you or you're not upset about it or, you know, you're not pissed off. Like what, where's the experiential avoidance or the emotional avoidance? Like, is there something that you're, you're not connecting with or that you've like pushed so far away that you, you can't touch it. And that actually can lead you to, not live authentically or not connect with those values or, you know, not live the life that you want to live. So you're absolutely right. It definitely does make me kind of think about it differently when I notice that sort of presentation as well. Yeah. My wife and I are involved in a universalist Unitarian church, um, Mm -hmm. even though I'm an atheist, which I've said before. Um, But the, uh, one of the most sort of satisfying experiences we have is um, we have this group where uh, they will actually provide daycare and uh, the adults get together and all talk. And um, it's very much like sort of therapy. Uh, at least that's what it feels like. Um, and it's this, this great experience where you get really get to see people open up um, who you may, kn- some people, you know, we know very well um, through this and some people we, we've we're meeting for the first time. Um, but I, I think, it's really fascinating because even in that in that scenario where I feel like people are are a little more open um, than they would be in other uh, in just regular conversation, perhaps um, it, I'm always sort of asking myself like, is this person trying to sell to me that they're happy or that things are going great? You know, there was one person in particular. I'm not going to mention any names, but there was um, one person that I did one of these with uh, in the past who was always a little bit. Uh, negative more than me I'm, I'm i like to think i'm an optimist and he's he seemed very much the opposite like very much a pessimist or a realist but 
um, it would it always struck me like, oh, that, I, I really, I wish he would say something positive. But in retrospect, after thinking about it, I'm like, this guy probably, he's probably being more real than the rest of us. Uh, you yeah. know, he's saying like, man, I'm really, how is no one else just crazy overwhelmed? I have two kids. Like, one kid has a has an illness that I have to, like, is this very, like, it requires a lot of attention and time and, and like, uh, caution. And so, like, yeah, of course he should be overwhelmed. Um, but then sometimes you just hear other people that are just happy-go-lucky and everything's great and I have a hard time. Um, and I like to hear happy news, but it's still, it just feels like uh, something's not right there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that it's also, uh, we, I don't know, it's kind of like a psychology joke or whatever that like, you know, the people who are depressed are actually the most accurate and like, realistic people right because the world is a really painful place there's a lot of bad things that happen in the world it's there's a lot of horrible things that happen to people and like I don't know that that's also kind of what the therapy that I do is is kind of focused on on that too like being a human means like opening yourself up to pain and sadness and depression. And, you know, like that's just what it means to be a human being. We all will inevitably suffer, you know, through the course of our life. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I definitely, you know, hear what you're saying there about that, you know, that person, because I think there is some truth to that. Yeah. It's a little, you know, a little rough around the edges, but I always, you know, I always appreciate even people that came off as very blunt to me, but I felt like they were telling me the truth, you know, just mm-hmm. uh, maybe not necessarily depressing, but just direct and yeah. direct can come off as really harsh to some people. Um, and I feel like I, you know, in architecture and, and in the arts, uh, a lot of like the performance arts, um, you know, you just get harsh feedback all the time. So maybe I've become like y- used to it a little bit, but sometimes I'll say something and I don't even feel like I'm, I just feel like I'm providing a uh, critique maybe. Uh, like, I think it's helpful, um, but some people are just like, wait, what? Did you just really say that? Like, this isn't your place to, to do that. Um, so it's it's hard to, like, walk that line between trying to be upfront and, and direct and mm-hmm. realistic without coming off as, like, sour grapes all the time, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the things that ha- that has helped me since becoming a mom, like, in, in my work is that I can be like, yeah, this sucks. Like... <laughs> this actually sucks because I think mothers and, and fathers, parents, you know, in general, like you're not supposed to talk about how difficult it is or how stressful. I mean, you can kind of be like, Oh yeah, I'm tired. I'm stressed. But for people to be like, this is the worst decision I ever made to have a kid. <laughs> this is hard. I mean, I, you know, I don't feel that way necessarily, but I've thought it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I love my kids, but, uh, mm, I don't yeah, know. No. It's true, though. Like, people, sh- I-, I hope that people can be more real about it because so many women that I've seen, they've come in to see me and they are filled with so much guilt and shame because they have so much joy with their kids. And then also, it it's not, it's really challenging and it didn't come easy to them and they're really struggling, but they feel like they can't admit that or can't talk about that. And so, I, I do think like, that has been helpful for me to be able to validate that and be like, yeah, this, this does suck. And to be really direct and really blunt and like irreverent about it. Like it is what it is and it's okay to, to be a parent and to feel that way. Right. Yeah. I like that. I, I, um, 
how do you feel like you know you're talking about the relationships between um uh sort of the client the client how they're opening up to you we've talked about that a lot but i'm I'm curious sort of back to the research end are you sort of doing the research in tandem with a lot of this i imagine and like where do you see it going i guess like where is it now and where do you see it going could you kind of dive into that yeah yeah, so, I mean, this field has really exploded, I would say, over the past, like, you know, 10, 15 years. There's been a lot more attention on postpartum depression and focusing on uh, women's reproductive health and mental health and all of that. So that's been really great and encouraging to see. Um, you know, the work that I've done, right now I'm really interested in developing like effective treatments for women. So a lot of what I'm talking about, so the kind of therapy that I um, practice, it's called acceptance and commitment therapy. So it's like a third wave, you know, behavioral therapy that um, addresses, you know, your thoughts and your emotions and your behaviors, but has that focus on psychological flexibility and on values and living consistently with what's, you know, most important to you. So my research really kind of stems from my clinical practice, like trying to apply this type of therapy for, you know, women um, during the either the postpartum period or just women who've experienced like a reproductive trauma or a loss. Um, so it's really fun. That's why I love, you know, clinical psychology, because you have the actual like clinical practice, but then you can use that from a research perspective and try to scientifically, you know, empirically study it and, and help a wide range of people, hopefully. Um, so that's really what I've been working on lately and trying to get some grant funding. So if <laughs> anybody wants to give me some money to do this research, you can contact me and yes, I'll definitely. I'll add a note. I'll add a note to the, to this yes. podcast post. Put it up in the show notes. Yes. <laughs> Send Alexa money. Yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me again. Is that uh, pneumonia? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no big deal. Um, I, I think this is. I think this is great. I, I think. Um, do you do you have like an area aside from what you're working on now that like sort of fascinates you, but you really maybe aren't even familiar with yet? Like something on the periphery that you've been like, oh, I'm kind of curious about that experience or that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. Infertility is definitely one that, like, my lab has worked on a lot, but I have not um, explored in as much detail. And uh, I think I might, you know, just next year or two, might kind of look into maybe doing like a small study um, in that area. So that's one topic. I mean, that's not necessarily on the periphery. It's definitely kind of in line with with what I've I've been doing. But um, you know, in academia, it's like feels on the periphery because I've been so focused in this one area. Right. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I I try to be very like open and kind of. That's the nice thing about being a faculty member is you do have that autonomy to kind of see what is interesting to you, and your career can kind of evolve from there. So. Yeah, I'm always open to, to seeing, like, what's next. Um, you know, one of the, the other areas I've become kind of interested in is all of, like, the different um, kind of reproductive technologies and, like, the advanced, you know, diagnostic screenings mm. and things that can be done. 
because, um, you know, it's new. We don't really know a lot about it, but also thinking about like decision making in terms of how it, it might increase your anxiety if you get like a false positive or something right. where you think it's a positive at the time, but then it ultimately doesn't end up um, happening. And so that's kind of an interesting area too that I haven't really explored that much, but I might want to in the future. So is that on the level of like CRISPR, like gene editing, or is that more sort of uh, in the real world? in the present now. Yeah, that the CRISPR gene editing stuff is really, uh, I'm so intrigued by it because <laughs> I'm kind of alarmed, but like as a scientist, I think about how that kind of technology could be so incredibly like useful and right. like, oh my gosh, but, but it is alarming like ethically and, um, right. And then you think of the other side of the spectrum, like people who are making like designer babies and then the rich exclude the poor and the rich are like designing better and better humans over time. It, it could be yeah. really like, you, you know, eugenics basically. Yeah. So that's the, yeah, the alarm is like, uh, that's just, you know, <laughs> it can just go so out of control and, and I don't put it past people to do that kind of stuff. So it could very well happen. Um, I was more kind of thinking not sort of on that level, although that would also be interesting to look at, but um, more just like the the different, like um, the blood testing that they can do. I don't even know what it's called. The quad screening, the amniocentesis, like those different kind of uh, procedures that sometimes they do like routinely now, but you get results in kind of making decisions about what to do or um, just experiencing like anxiety or something about uh needing to know information that maybe is it really going to change what you would do anyway you know that kind of stuff right yeah my, i mean my wife and i don't actually know if you know this but we um we declined that the test that gives you like all the results the blood test just because we yeah. didn't we didn't feel like we wanted to know and if if we knew something like wh whatever it may be if it was down syndrome or something else you know um do do you really want to know that and then have to make a judgment or do you just want to accept the person like yeah. whoever that person is and we kind of wanted to be on that level but it's it's extremely difficult like i didn't i really underestimated how difficult it was just even thinking about that when we were first planning on having kids before yeah. our, our kids were born and like having to think about it and then actually as hard as that was it was a million times harder with the second kid cuz then you have the perspective where you're like holy crap, I'm creating a real human. Like, mm -hmm. why would I want to do anything to toy with this in any way? I just want to, like, like this is an amazing thing that happens in nature. Like, this, this is unbelievable. I, you know, as I've already said before, I'm an atheist, and this is probably the most miraculous thing that I still can't wrap my brains around. Like, I, I understand down to, like, like I, the, the, the microscopic level. Like, I understand how it happens physically, it still doesn't understand, like, you don't, that fuse that makes a person, like, that part still just blows my mind. And so to, to toy around with that, I find it really hard to do. As, as, again, I, I think I'm similar to your answer, like, technologically, it's, it's fascinating, the CRISPR stuff, things like that. But, but yeah, it's just, why do you want to toy with that? It, it's, I have a hard time. I have a hard time getting on board. It's concerning. And yeah, we did the same thing. We didn't do any of the testing because I was like, it's not going to change what we do. Whatever the results are, our, our choices are not going to be any different. So it doesn't matter. Let's not do it. Right. And yeah, it's miraculous. It's unbelievable. And how little you have to do. Like, 
I mean, obviously creating the baby and, and then it grows. Like I didn't do anything except like eat pickle chips and drink milk. <laughs> and like that pickle thing was real. I definitely um, was like, that's such a cliche. That's not true. And then I was like, I need drink. I was like drinking pickle juice and olive juice out of the jar. Oh, lovely. Anyway, there's something biological about that. But long story short, you don't do anything and it's just miraculous. It just happens. It's incredible. So I agree. I would not want to toy with that. It's, that's definitely a concern. Um, well, I think uh, I, I want to um, swing around for a second. Uh, I, we're going to end on one more thing in a minute. In the future, I plan on having like listener questions, but obviously I don't have a lot of listeners <laughs> quite, quite yet. <laughs> um, and so I think there'll be a few listener, listener questions at, like, about this point. But I, I am curious. We did talk about like the charity event that you wanted to mention. Do you, would you like to do that? Donation directions. Directions on where and how to donate your donations. Yeah, so the charity that I wanted to talk about, um, it's called the Alexis Joy Foundation. And so it's um, really, you know, close to my heart personally and professionally, but it was, um, the charity was started in memory of a woman who died by suicide um, uh, about six weeks, I believe, after uh, her daughter was born. And so it's a, a charity supporting research and clinical work um, dealing with perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. So it's a really great charity. I was actually at a conference two years ago and heard um, her husband, he, he came to speak at the conference. And so it was the first conference event I'd ever attended at like an academic research conference where there were tissues like on oh, the man. table yeah, and like they were definitely needed and it was just like gut wrenching. Um, to hear him speak and just underscored, I think, like the importance of the work and just the great need for, you know, attention in this area. So that is the charity um, that I would like to support. And so you can just Google it, the Alexis Joy Foundation. Yes. And we'll, uh, we'll include a link um, in the listing of the, the um, podcast. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> so I have one other sort of question I'm going to end on. And this actually was inspired by my last uh, interview guest, um, Alex <laughs> Coulomb. Um, good friend of mine. I think you've probably met a couple times. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so he, he kind of, I realized I didn't really have parting words and, um, I don't know if I have anything profound yet to say on this. I'm kind of absorbing everyone that I'm talking to in the interviews and trying to th see if there's like sort of a, a way I can cap it off. So instead I'm going to put it on you. Um, <laughs> take the responsibility away from me. And one of the things he asked, I think that was good. Um, and you can take a minute to absorb this if you want. But sort of what advice do you have or what do you think people can do to be their most authentic self? You know, from your perspective, I think it's, it's especially relevant because you've, I think you've seen the spectrum in terms of how people uh, uh, pretend to be or how they just genuinely are. Um, so I'm curious sort of, yeah, what, what can people do to be their most authentic self? Yeah, I would say, I mean, kind of, echoing, you know, a point that I was making earlier about really taking the time to think about your values, like what is most important to you when you imagine, you know, the end of your life, what would you want people to say about you or what you did or, you know, who you were? 
And then really be honest with yourself about how you're spending your time and what behaviors you're doing and do they line up? You know, are they consistent? So I, again, you know, in my work and this, this has resonated with me. It started out as a professional thing and then became like incredibly personal. Like, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of women who are like, oh, well at the end of my life, like I want my kids to say, oh, I, I had a great mom and I was a great friend and a great employee and whatever. But then when you're like, oh, but you just spent five hours cleaning your house and not playing with your with your kids. <laughs> so how your behaviors really aren't consistent with what you say is the most important thing. And I right. think so many people are living lives where they're they're engaging in these behaviors and doing these things that that really aren't connected to their values at all. And that's why they feel that their life is meaningless or they're not satisfied or they don't feel pleasure. And so... I don't know. I don't know. Like it sounds. It sounds so simple, but again, it yeah. goes back to what I'm saying. I think the older you are, I feel like you gain more and more perspective. So I can't yeah. say that I necessarily would have been as aware of that, but I, I completely agree with you. I mean, just yeah, try to be go after what you want to want to do in life, and yeah. you know, if there's a partner in your life or family in your life, you know, trying to get on the same page with them as well. Um, but yeah, trying to 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 be your most uh, authentic self. Definitely, I think that's yeah. a good way to go. And let go of what isn't important or in the moment doesn't matter and go to the charcoal pit and get the kitchen sink ice cream <laughs> thing in your sweatpants. Yes, and definitely. Just go nuts. But that's, I think, yeah, I don't know. That's the only kind of thing I can, I can think of is just really be honest with yourself about what's most important and try to behave, you know, consistently with that. Awesome. Thank you, Alexa. Um, uh, you've been a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for doing this again. Thank you, thank you. Uh, and I also want to say um, thank you to anyone who's listening, all five of you at this point. No, <laughs> hopefully more than five. Um, but thank, yeah, thank you for being a listener. And this has been the Two Hip Podcast. Mm-hmm.